Welcome to For Your Benefit, presented by NITP, the federal leader in retirement planning seminars sponsored by WEPA. Join NITP for an hour of plain talk on planning your future. You've got questions, they've got answers. Good morning and welcome to the February 5th, 2018 For Your Benefit show. We're here today with Mark Levine. Mark is an attorney, fellow seminar presenter, all-around good guy, but he knows estate law, and he's going to talk with an overview of estate tax law changes at the federal level, as well as mention some states, but not all. Good morning. Morning, Bob. How are you? All right. Yeah, I'm good. Um, I, usually, uh, working with you is very easy. <laughs> good morning, Mark. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> anyway, so um, capsule summary of uh, changes at the federal estate law. Sure. So, obviously there were a lot of tax changes at the end of 2017, uh, some of them on the income tax side and some of them on the estate tax side. Uh, so some things that didn't change, the gift tax exclusion, it went up from 14000 to 15000 but that limit on the amount you're allowed to give people each year didn't change. But the thing that did change is your lifetime exemption. Uh, the federal estate tax, uh, basically the rules were if you're a state exceeded a certain amount, uh, whatever the exemption was set at, you had to file a tax return. And if your net estate exceeded a certain amount, you had to pay a tax. And that tax is 40% of the amount over the exemption. So long ago when I started doing estate planning, that exemption level was $600,000 uh, on the federal level. Today, it's $11.2 million. So it's a significantly higher number than it was. Uh, the tax rate has gone down from a top rate of 55%, which was uh, just sort of astoundingly confiscatory, to just a mere 40%, which is just plain confiscatory, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so the rate's gone down, but it's still pretty high. But it's really only going to affect a very small sliver of people. So prior to the Tax Act at the end of 2017, the exemption was scheduled this year to be $5.6 million. Instead, it's going to be $11.2 million per person. So that's like twice? They doubled it, essentially. Yeah. And what happened was, you may hear different numbers. You may hear that it went from $5 million to $10 million. That's the base number. So the base number of the exemption is $5 million, now $10 million, but that's indexed for inflation. So in 2013 or 2011, it was $5 million. It's bumped all the way up to $5.6 and now $11.2 million. Uh, but that's not the entire story because the federal estate tax also has something called portability. Uh, what the federal estate tax law says that when I die, I can leave my assets essentially to my wife and she can, or husband, uh, and she can take my exemption when she dies and add it to her own, assuming she files an estate tax return when I die. So essentially, she can leave $22.4 million to our kids uh, at the second death, at her death. So first, we go and get $22.4 million. Then, when we both <laughs> die, we can leave that money to our kids and not pay any federal estate tax at all. So that's all the good news. Uh, the less good news is that that, like many personal exemptions in the new tax act, sunsets. So this doubling of the estate tax exemption goes from essentially 2018 through the end of 2025 and then January 1, 2026, it is halved again. So right. it's going to go back from 10 to 5. Help me here. Yes. Uh, now, uh, I, I would imagine people know I'm an accountant, but I need some help with this. So all these nice provisions, if you will, that uh, people would agree that they're nice. I'm not saying the law is good, bad, or otherwise to everybody, but this one would be a nice one. Most people are not going to worry about the 5, let alone the 11 uh, million, but... All this goes backwards, excuse me, goes back, it's reset to what it was prior to the law change in, in what year again? Uh, 2026. So January 1, 2026, the exemption went, it went from 5 to 10, and 2026, it goes back from 10 to 5, then indexed for inflation. Okay, unless somebody does something in between then, but probably not. Well, I'm not going to say anything. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? The, the issue is one of planning. In other words, if you have uh, an estate where you and your spouse together would exceed the exemption, you want to look at more planning. Well, you don't know perhaps in 2023 and 2024 
whether in 2026 your estate will exceed that exemption. It's a pretty big delta between five and 10 million, between 10 and 20 million to know in terms of planning, what do I have to plan for? Uh, and so that's something that will create some uncertainty if it's not modified. And you know, a lot of people ask me as an estate planning attorney, do I think the estate tax is good or bad? Do I want it high or low? I just want it certain. I just want to be able to say to a client, this is what it is and this is what it's going to be. So this is the part of it that I, I dislike is this uncertainty where you can't say to a client, this is how we have to plan. All right. Uh, a little bit of a detour, if I'm not mistaken, this provision that it would revert back to the law as we knew it uh, five weeks ago. Uh, I, I believe this is for every facet of that tax law change. It's for the person, most of the personal right. ones, not the corporate ones. Not the corporate. They, um, they, yeah. And I think there are a few carve outs on the personal. I could be wrong where it may be, but for the most part, they all revert, I think, in 2026. Okay. So, again, the, the folks um, uh, listening, as well as myself, it's a lot of study to know this. And then we're going to know it, but then it will probably go back to what it was that we knew years before. Sure. And I think that's, you know, you, you're going to have the same issue as I am, which is, planning for people in 2023 or 2024 with the idea, or 2025 with the idea of, well, does this planning carry over to 2026 or That's not? where I was going. So if uh, you have it, I would say probably rougher than I do. Um, you know, I know this is it. People are going to grumble about uh, what's going to happen. They don't understand, but they don't have to understand it after however many years. Yours, you know, an estate plan is built for longevity rather than a tax return built annually. Yes and no. I mean, yes, I think you're right conceptually. But the fact is we're talking about people who have somewhere at that point between six and twelve million dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's less of them. In other words, you have to deal with the tax law pretty much for every single person. There's a lot of people for whom the changes in the tax law going from 5 million to 10 million is an irrelevant change. The, the number of people who will actually ever have to file an estate tax return, much less pay an estate tax, numbers in the, the you know ones of thousands, not the tens of thousands or twenties of thousands or hundreds of thousands. So it's really still a very small universe of people. Okay, so our listeners are, are hopefully not turning off at this point because they say, well, this is for somebody else. When you hear the term estate, we've got a federal estate tax, but you can also have a state estate tax Yep. So that, that maybe isn't as attractive as this one? Right, so prior to uh, 2004 or so, I believe, every state had their own estate tax. Some of them were just an estate tax that said, uh, it used to be the federal government said if you owe uh, if you owe the state sixteen and you owe us a hundred, you pay the state sixteen and you pay us eighty four. So you never paid more total than what you owed the feds. That's a gross simplification, but but that sort of serves. So there were a lot of states who said, well, it's free money. I you know if this money is going to be paid by our citizens anyway in Florida, we'd rather sixteen of it come to us rather than go to the federal government. And in fact, the Florida citizens probably felt the same way. They'd rather, if they're paying the money anyway, mm -hmm. they'd rather pay it to the state. In 2004, uh, they changed that from a uh, credit to a deduction, which made it less valuable, which also led a lot of states to say, well, if my citizen's gonna pay more, we're not interested in the estate tax. And a lot of states dropped out of the estate tax business at that point. Uh, so a lot of states, simply said, we're not going to do anything that is going to create more tax for our citizen by having a separate estate tax. So there, there's a limited number of states that have a state-level estate tax at all uh, in 2018. Uh, I, can, I can read them real quick. Yeah, and, I think it would be good. So Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Oregon, uh, Minnesota, Washington State, Vermont, Illinois, Maryland, New York, uh, the District of Columbia, Hawaii, and Maine all have federal, uh, state-level estate taxes. There are some states that have an inheritance tax that kind of acts like uh, an estate tax, similar, at least something you have to be aware of, you're going to pay some taxes. So Nebraska, Iowa, Kentucky, uh, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey also have an inheritance tax. So you know, there's a handful of states where you're going to pay a tax. All the rest of them, there is no state-level a state tax or inheritance tax. So Virginia, California, Colorado, uh, you know, uh, there's just no 
death tax at all. Okay, help me with the inheritance tax. I think we understand the estate tax. It's kind of over there. But if there is an inheritance tax, does the person inheriting it pay it personally, or is it taken from them before it's distributed from the estate? Yes. So it's both. It depends. And and this is where we get into the weeds of state-level laws. Most of the state-level estate taxes pretty much mirror the federal estate tax. There are some significant differences, but conceptually they're the same. Uh, the inheritance taxes are different from state to state. Uh, so I'm not going to sort of try and, and get into the weeds of what uh, Iowa and Kentucky and Nebraska <laughs> yeah. do. Uh, Maryland has an inheritance tax. And to answer your question, it's a tax on receipt, not a tax on transfer. So if I want, if I'm, if I die and I want to leave you $20,000, you get 18000 and the state of Maryland gets 2000 That's a 10% estate ta- mm-hmm. inheritance tax. Uh, now, if my will says pay Bob's tax, I really want Bob to get $20,000. So Give him 20, give the state of Maryland two to pay the tax. Maryland says thanks, but that $2,000 was another gift to Bob. We need $200. And that's an interrelated calculation that can go on forever. Maryland stops it, I think, at four. Uh, I think you you would pay $22,222 right. uh, to give you $20,000. You divide it by 0.9. Right. So um, that if it's going through the estate, the estate pays the tax, gives you the net. If it's coming from a life insurance, well, not from a life insurance, but if it's coming from an IRA, for example, or joint ownership of an account or property, then you're going to get the tax bill and you're going to have to write the check. Uh, so it really depends on the method of transfer. And it doesn't matter where where the person receiving it lives. It matters where the decedent lives. So you live in Kentucky and you know, you're the decedent and the person you're leaving money to lives in Alabama doesn't matter. They still have to pay the tax. But if you live in Kentucky and your uncle in Alabama dies and you get money, you're not paying a Kentucky inheritance tax. So if if I'm listening to the show and I'm saying, okay, I'm, I'm tracking with this. I understand the inheritance tax. I understand the estate tax uh, from a hundred mile view. Um, and now I, I think I'm hearing that some states, uh, locally, Maryland, not everybody's local, but uh, they get the money first before you get the money second. So that's that's the inheritance tax, yeah. um, which, again, is particular. There's a lot of exceptions to the inheritance tax. In other words, in Maryland, at least, my kids don't pay an inheritance tax. My spouse doesn't. My parents don't. My siblings don't. My grandchildren don't. So there's a lot of exceptions to that. Um, I think what and and again, depending on who you're leaving money to, that may be significant. The um, the estate tax part of it is really the part that's changing, that's going to be different. Uh, Maryland in 2014 had changed their estate tax already. Their exemption had been a million dollars. They said, okay, we're going to go up a little bit each year. Uh, and in 2019, we're going to make our number the same as the federal number, thinking the federal number would be about 5.6, 5.7 million. So this year, Maryland's estate tax exemption is $4 million. The federal's 11.2, Maryland's 4. So you're going to pay some separate tax to Maryland if you die this year. Uh, Maryland, in theory, is supposed to go up to 11.2 or 3 but next it's, it's year. staged, isn't it? Well, it's staged, but this is the last year of the staging. The last so stage. 2019. Yeah. There's already legislation, I believe, introduced to cap the Maryland estate tax at 5.6 or 5.7, basically to cap it at that $5 million number. So... You might hear that the tax is going up in Maryland to 11.2 or more million. It may not. D.C., it did. D.C. went from a million to two million last year to 11.2 million this year. So Maryland, uh, D.C. went from one of the lowest estate tax exemptions, a million, to two years later being 11.2 million. Uh, and currently, we don't know of anything where they're going to try and rein that back to be the five and a half or, you know, uh, around around that dollar million dollar mark, uh, so that's a significant change in those two jurisdictions. Okay, we're going to come back after a break, and uh, I'd imagine a number of people listening thus far have said, "Well, that's not my that's not my league." Well, maybe it's not, but it might be parents. It might be your league downstream. But um, uh, again, remember, it's going to revert back to uh, lower numbers later. But it's time to uh, take a break, and we'll listen to what WEPA can do for our listeners. And one of the things, they really have a um, um, terrific life insurance program with a, a significant benefit if they want it to be that high. 
Are you making a career or life transition and concerned about how to get the most for your money? Register now for WEPA's free webinar series at waepa.org to get the information you need to plan a secure future for your family. WEPA, a nonprofit association serving federal civilian employees since 1943, in partnership with NITP, the national leader in federal benefits, financial literacy, and pre-retirement training, invite you to join this free webinar series to learn more about topics that affect your income and health at waepa.org. Experts answer your questions on how to manage stress, reduce debt, buy a home, save for your children's college education, determine when you can retire, and have peace of mind in your estate planning. Register now and discover the benefits of WEPA membership today at waepa.org. WEPA is a proud sponsor of For Your Benefit, presented by NITP. Welcome back to For Your Benefit. We're here today with Mark Levine. Mark is an attorney, uh, an estate planning attorney, and we talked about uh, new laws, maybe being not new laws after a number of years to the old laws. So when you heard those numbers that we just mentioned, a number of people are going to say, that's not me. Okay, maybe it will be you, but probably not most people are going to bump their head on that. But when it comes back, you've got years to plan. So right before the break, we were going to go where? Uh, I think... We're going to pivot, I think, probably away from estate taxes in a minute and talk about the the uh, qualified plans, TSP, IRA, things like that. I will say there are a couple of states where the exemption is still pretty low. So Oregon and Massachusetts, it's both still at a million dollars. Uh, Rhode Island's at a little over 1.5. Uh, Connecticut's, I think, 2.6 or 2.7. The same with Minnesota. So there's still some states where it is relatively low. And certainly in Massachusetts or Oregon, if you have an insurance policy and a TSP, you may easily trip uh, that million dollars at the second death. I'm, so, glad, I'm glad you said that because uh, the TSP is growing like they have. And with the, um, I guess, the number of years that it's been around since, what, 86, 85, uh, these numbers are significant. Well, that's, I'd say, one of the biggest uh areas of, of concern and growth in, in our practice as estate planners, and I think in the all of estate planning, is dealing with these qualified plans. So a qualified plan is any plan where there's some tax deferral. Uh, either you're putting in pre-tax money or you're putting in post-tax money, but it's growing tax deferred. So it could be as simple as an IRA. Yep. IRAs, 401ks, 403bs, 457s, uh, TSP, uh, your... TSP Roth and a Roth IRA, a Roth 401k, all of these are qualified plans. All of them are things that you have to sort of be thinking about what's the impact of leaving this to my beneficiaries, whoever they may be. Uh, and that, I think, is one of the the more difficult conversations you have with clients because you you sort of veer off into this area that people didn't necessarily expect to go in. You know, I want to control the money or I don't want to control the money. I trust my kid or I don't. But now I've got to factor in what's the income tax impact of leaving this to my parent, my sibling, my child, my niece or nephew, my spouse, or a trust uh, for these people? Uh, and how do I how do I fit that in? Life insurance is really easy to deal with as an estate planner. Uh, because life insurance, you can fold, spindle, and mutilate. You can shove it into a trust. You can cut it up into 100 pieces. You can give it sooner. You can give it later. The income taxes are almost irrelevant in, in terms of when we think about planning with a life insurance. Even uh, large numbers? Yeah. I mean, look, you have to think about estate taxes. You have to think about you know when are we distributing. But we don't have to think about what is the income tax impact when the asset hits the trust, for example. Uh, we don't have to worry that, you know, do we have which of our beneficiaries is the better recipient of our life insurance policy versus our TSP? Uh, you know, when you're thinking about your TSP, and again, I'm going to use that as a placeholder for every qualified account, IRA, 401k, et cetera, you've got to think about what is the income tax impact of this person getting it? You know, there's sort of four basic kinds of beneficiaries for your TSP. Uh, the, probably the most income tax efficient in most cases is a charity. You leave your TSP, your $250,000 TSP to a charity, they take the two hundred fifty. dollars they don't pay any income taxes, they go off and do their good work. That's a very 
income tax efficient distribution, perhaps. Could, could it be a small amount of the pie of the TSP pie? Let's say it's a pie. Right. Can I cut a sliver off and donate it? You can. So you can't do num- numbers. In other words, you can't say I want to leave $10,000 here and $4,000 there. It's always got to be percentages. And with the TSP, it's got to be whole percentages. So you can have up to 100 different beneficiaries for your TSP. Please never do that. Uh, it's it's uh, It gets very confusing, as you can imagine, uh, to leave 1% to a bunch of different places. But you can absolutely do 10, 20, 30, 40, 50% there. Uh, if you have three children and you want to split it equally among your kids, one of the things that they will then discover is who your favorite is. Because one of them gets 34%, the other two get 33%. <laughs> so that, that extra percent's got to go somewhere. Um, many times IRAs, 401ks will let you go into a little more percentage. So you can do 33.34 for one and 33.33 for the other two. Uh, but for the most part, you're, you're thinking about whole percentages. Could I, could I ask you this? Let's say we have one child and we want it. There's no question where it's going. It's going to that child, maybe in trust for that child, maybe not. But let's say we have two and um, we're, you know, close to pre-retirement and whatnot. Kids may be grown. One has uh, the earmarkings of never having to worry about money. The other one um, isn't isn't as fortunate. How do you deal with a disproportionate share rather than 50-50 or whatever the number is? Um, it could be 75-25. Practically speaking, it's just you write it down that way. In other words, the beneficiary designation says, you know, uh, Cain gets 75% and Abel gets 25%. Uh, and that's, it's as simple as that. It's okay. just you writing the numbers down. Uh, so how you deal with it when they see it, that's yes. another question. But but that's uh, psychology and we're not doing that today. Exactly. We do it. We do it all the time. <laughs> I bet you do. But uh, but not on the radio. Uh, so charity is one of your beneficiaries. The, the most, the, the place where most of them go, at least initially, is a spouse. And a spouse is the the most efficient person to receive your your uh, TSP because a spouse can roll it over. They can keep it as what's called a decedents. They can transfer it to a decedents IRA, uh, which means that they can take money out sooner, uh, not pay a 10% penalty, but pay income tax as they take the money out. So they can roll it over into their own and, and let it grow till 70 and a half when they have to start taking it out. Or they can take it out sooner, pay income tax as they take it out, but not pay any penalty. Uh, Every other human being in the world is the third kind of beneficiary. There are, for humans, there are spouse beneficiaries and non-spouse beneficiaries. And every non-spouse beneficiary is treated the same way uh, in terms of what the rules are. So whether you give it to your father or your brother or your child or a complete stranger, it's the same rules. And the rules essentially are uh, that they have to transfer that to an inherited IRA. Uh, they then can choose uh, to take it all and pay all the income tax immediately. They can pay out the income tax over five years, or they can do what most people are advised to do and use what's called the life expectancy method, where they stretch it out over their life expectancy. So you give $250,000 to a 25-year-old, they've got a 50-, 60-year life expectancy. Uh, the year following your death, they have to start taking money out of the inherited IRA but only based on that life expectancy. Their life expectancy. Their life expectancy. Yeah. And we're really talking here about you know where the decedent was under 70 and a half. There are some other options where the decedent was over 70 and a half when they died. But the, the 25-year-old takes the money. Uh, they take out a little bit each year. It continues to grow tax-deferred after that. Uh, and they take out a little bit, tiny bit, very more. little bit, right? That, that, well, basically a you know one sixtieth or whatever the calculation yeah. is. So it's a pretty small bit, uh, and it continues to grow. And it, it's a great tax deferred investment for them. Uh, it's so good, in fact, that you hear a lot of talk that eventually Congress is going to get rid of it. That they're going to say, yes. "Look, IRAs are here to help you plan for your retirement. They're not here to help your kids plan for their retirement. And we're going to go and make everyone." Uh, do the five-year payout method rather than a life expectancy method. But right now we get that life expectancy method and it's a tremendous benefit to this this child or this sibling or this niece or nephew or whoever it is. Uh, it also reminds you, you always want your TSP ideally going to a young person rather than an old person. So I have clients who have come in and said, well, I'm worried about my dad. If something happens, I'm going to leave my dad my TSP and I'm going to leave my nephews, the uh, the life insurance policy. 
Can you break the TSP up into component parts? Uh, my dad, uh, my brother or sister, so each would get a third? Sure, sure. Uh, that We'll come back to that for a second when you do that. But really, ideally, if you have two pots of money, you don't want the tax-deferred part going to the old person. Because the old person's got a much shorter life expectancy. They've got to take it out much quicker. Maybe they're paying it at a lower tax rate, so that may be a benefit, and that's something you might want to look at. Uh, so your kid lives in New York City and pays the highest possible income taxes there are. Maybe he's not the best beneficiary. Okay, so I guess I just heard that, that just because I'm old, which of course I'm not. Um, you are never old. Okay. You're ageless, Bob. All right, so I have to take it out over a shorter period of time than somebody 20 years younger than I and I think now I understand it because whatever I get is based on my life expectancy, not what somebody else's life expectancy may be. That's right. And and it's, it's you know, you have to take it out quicker, pay taxes quicker. Uh, you take out more every year, so it adds to your income more every year. These are calculations that with a life insurance policy, we never have to look at. We're not as concerned about what the one child's income tax rate is versus another child's income tax rate. We don't have to look at those things. We don't have to consider those things uh, if you're dealing with investments or cash or uh, even equity in a house. Uh, you have to be thinking about all of these things when you're thinking about qualified plans. I, I, I think, too, just the listeners need to be reminded this is not a, a tax course. It's to say how do we keep the, the, the asset around as long as it can be. That's right. And And unlike the estate tax, this is something that everybody's dealing with. In other words, the the number of TSP millionaires and $800,000 heirs and half a million dollar heirs there are is increasing significantly. Uh, and anyone with one of these assets is going to have to be thinking about what's the income tax impact of who I leave this asset to. Okay. And, and again, for those listening, um, the, the million-dollar TSP balances were around before the market went crazy, however many years it's been. So there were people getting to the threshold, and, and currently a lot of them have been list, lifted into this club. Um, and hopefully they stay in that club because the market um, uh, will continue. Maybe not its torrid pace, but at least it'll grow percentage-wise over the years. So the, the issue for a lot of clients is not, well, I've got two well-adjusted children who I'm happy to leave my TSP to because they'll take it and they'll be responsible and they'll take the minimum required distribution every year and leave the rest in there to grow. That's easy. Uh, where it becomes an issue for most clients is the, the difficult child, uh, the parasitic child, the incompetent child, the incapable child. Uh, what do we do? when we don't want to leave the money outright to that child. And sometimes it might just be that the child in question is five years old. And sometimes it may be that the child is 25 and not quite settled yet. And sometimes the question is the child is 45 and will never be settled and can never handle the money on their own. Um, so, you know, when we do estate planning, trusts are something we talk a lot about. Uh, I have kids who are 12, 15, and 17 I have trust for my kids if my wife and I are gone. So the real question is, what do I do with my IRA uh, at my death if my wife is gone? Do I leave it to them outright? So now I've got an 18-year-old who, in theory, has a 60-year life expectancy to pull the money out. It's a great investment, but 18-year-olds are not notorious for how well they manage money or the good decisions they make uh, in college or after college. Uh, so generally, I've got to trust for my child. I want to say, look, I'd rather my sister be in charge of the money for you than you be in charge of the money for you because you've just lost both your parents and you're 18 years old. Uh, but trusts aren't people. And so when you leave a qualified asset to a trust, you don't get the same role, rules as when you leave it to a person. If, if that person, in your example, is terrific, at, at this age, we feel that they're going to be fine, but maybe not for a few years with regard to the ability to keep the money in there. But is there a trigger mechanism to say, okay, between now and 25, this is what you're going to do after 25, it's yours? There can be. There, hmm. are, there are ways to do that, but they all come down to trust. In other words, if you just say, well, if you say in your will, well, my kid doesn't get it till they're 25. You've created a trust, whether you called it a trust, whether you made a trustee or not, 
Uh, I have clients who come in and say, well, just I want to set it up. So they just don't get it till 25, but I don't want to trust. Well, you do because that's that's the mechanism. That's the way it works. So again, life insurance, investments, easy. We put the money in the trust. The trust has rules. The trustee says, hey, I'll pay for college and I'll pay for your health insurance. And you've reached the age at which your parents think you should be able to do something with the money that they wouldn't approve of. You get the money. Here it is. Uh, with retirement plans, with qualified plans, it's not that easy because we also have to think about the income taxes and trusts are not people. Uh, so what, what's the difference? What's the, essentially a trust has a zero life expectancy. The regular ordinary trust that, that you would have set up for your 10 year old has a zero life expectancy at death. So you die, your spouse dies, your TSP says, if my spouse is gone, when I die, put the money in this trust I've set up, the Jones Family Trust for my 10-year-old. And your 10-year-old may have a 70-year life expectancy, but the trust for your 10-year-old has a zero life expectancy. And so what does that mean practically? Mm. Practically, it means the money comes out of the TSP, it goes into an inherited IRA, and then it's got to get paid out over five years. All that money has to come out, all the taxes have to be paid within five years rather than within 70 years. So it goes from being a $250,000 tax deferred investment to being a $150,000 fully taxed investment. Uh, so from an income tax point of view, it's exactly not what we want. We've read about, um, I'm sure you know this case, um, it, it's somewhat of a, a local situation. Let's not call it a case. Individual, federal employee, and this is real important, I think. The spouse is not a Fed. If, if it was, then you got a different set of rules that are very attractive. So the, the individual passes money's a significant amount of money in the thrift. Uh, the surviving spouse felt that, gee, that's a good place for it. It's been good for the family, et cetera, and unfortunately passes very soon after the one spouse passed. Uh, not everybody has kids, but m most do. And so then the kids— and everyone has beneficiaries. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So the beneficiaries are the kids. They've got to take that money out, as I understand, within five years. Right. So what happened is prior to, I think, 2007, uh, the thrift, basically the rule was any non-spouse beneficiary could not roll it over into an inherited IRA. Uh, you could not get a life expectancy distribution. 2007, I think they amended the first part of the, when they did the Pension Protection Act, and they said, you know, the thrift said, okay, we're going we're gonna to act like a 401k. And I think this is the problem is that the thrift walks like a 401k and quacks like a 401k, but it's not a 401k. And this is one of those places where there just isn't legislation to deal with the issue. And so if you leave your TSP to your spouse, who's not a Fed, they then leave it to the kids. The kids can't roll it over into a life expectancy inherited IRA. Um, so it used to be before 2006, I would say to clients, look, I don't know anything about the investment choices or you know what's good or bad about the TSP, but I will tell you when you retire, you got to get it out of there because when you leave it to your kids, they won't be able to get this life expectancy method. After 2007, I said, I'm out of that business. I don't care what you do with it. You make investment decisions with the investment advisor. Now we're sort of back to that where uh, we'll say to a spouse who inherits the TSP, I understand how good it's been to you all. It's a great accumulation device, uh, but it, you have children or beneficiaries you want to leave this to, you probably need to take it out of the thrift. You should not leave it there. You should transfer it to an IRA. Now they have the good fortune to be talking to you, um, but if, if they... They didn't get good advice. They would think, well, I'm going to leave it in here because it's, it's been good. Sure. Uh, but if they were to pull it out because they got good advice, certainly from listening to you on the radio show, that um, maybe what they should have done is take it out of the TSP and try to mimic the investments, mirror the investments inside a traditional IRA, and then when they were to pass or are going to pass, then it's kind of in a protected environment. But more importantly, if then the kids inherit it, they get to spread it out over a very long period of time relative to five years. Yeah, no, that's absolutely the, the, the case. And again, the investment decisions, what you're going to do with the money, those are, those are above my pay grade. Uh, you know, so finding the right person, 
you know, what I tell clients is as long as you have the interest and ability to do it yourself, that's fine. If you lose either of those, you need help. You need someone helping you. You need advice. And so go get that advice if you think you need it, but get it out of the TSP in that scenario, not in other scenarios. Talking about good advice, and I get wrapped around the axle when you come in here and others too. I just lose track of time. And Andrew says, hey, it's time to take a break and uh, the folks can listen to what NITP can do for them. Who do you trust when making your most important decisions? National Institute of Transition Planning has been the trusted source for federal retirement planning, serving new, mid-career, and pre-retirement federal employees for more than 30 years. NITP's subject matter experts bring more than 800 years of collective expertise on federal benefits, financial, transition, and estate planning. Visit NITPinc.com. That's NITPinc.com to sign up for their free monthly newsletter and information about free webinars. Does planning for retirement seem like a daunting task? Is retirement years away? It will arrive sooner than you think. Prepare now to stay on track. Join the thousands of federal employees and retirees who have already attended National Institute of Transition Planning's free monthly webinars to learn more about retirement and financial planning. NITP is the national leader and trusted source for federal retirement information. Visit NITPinc.com to sign up for NITP's free monthly newsletter and webinar. Welcome back to For Your Benefit, where um, we have uh, how many minutes? 40 minutes, 35 minutes of intense knowledge, but understandable knowledge, thanks to Mark Levine, attorney, um, state tax uh, attorney, talking about laws, reversion of laws and whatnot. Uh, tell your friends about this one. This is, um, this is good listening. And right before the break, I even forgot what we were going to do when we came back from the break. What was it, Mark? So we're going to talk about trusts. Uh, because basically what I've done is posited the problem. Here's the problem is we have these income taxes. How is the problem solved? I have this 25 year old who I don't necessarily think will make good choices with the money. They'll take all the money out. They won't put money aside for taxes. They won't deal responsibly with it. Um, so what do we do with it? Well, we've talked about in other shows, trust for kids, and we've gone into great detail about what a trust for a, a child or a, a younger beneficiary may look like. Why don't we just say, I'm going to leave the TSP to the Jones Family Trust and let it go there? Well, we've talked about one reason, income taxes. So IRS has a fix for this. IRS says that there are ways to create a trust so that the trust life, the, the life expectancy of the trust is the same as the life expectancy of the beneficiary. These are called sort of generally IRA trusts or conduit trusts. Uh, and basically what IRS says is, look, if you set this up correctly, if you jump through the hoops, if you put the words in the document correctly, we will let you treat the 25-year-old as though they're 25. So we will say, okay, it's in a trust. Trust is a zero life expectancy, but you checked all the boxes to make it a correct IRA trust. We will treat the trust as though it's a 25-year-old. We'll give it a 50-year life expectancy. We'll let you stretch out the payments without paying all the taxes you know, immediately or over five years. Uh, that's great. This is exactly the answer we want. But as with most things that seem like it's the only, it's the answer you want, it's more complicated than that. A, con a conduit trust has certain requirements. Some of them are very basic. It has to be valid under state law. Okay. It has to be irrevocable or become irrevocable upon death. So my revocable living trust is revocable when I die, it becomes irrevocable. So that's pretty easy. Um, the, the one that trips most people up is the trust's underlying beneficiary must all be identifiable as being eligible. What does that mean? Yeah, well, what's that mean? So that's yeah. that's where it gets complicated. Uh, so if I have one child and I say at my death, uh, leave the the conduit leave the the money to the trust for that one child, uh, we've identified who they get it. But we've also got something in the trust that says, but if they die, give the money to this charity. Well, so who are the identifiable beneficiaries? Because the child's one, great, check a box. The charity's one, two, perhaps. And they don't qualify under the trust. So if you have a charitable beneficiary, your conduit trust might not work. So IRS set out some rules. They said, okay, if you have a trust where all the required minimum distributions get distributed out to the beneficiary, we don't care who the ultimate beneficiary is. So you can say, leave it to my 25-year-old, but if my 25-year-old's gone, leave it to this charity. That'll be fine with them. But what does that mean? 
means your trust is going to leak. Means that I've put the TSP into a trust and every year money's going to get pushed out to my kid, whether it's a good idea or not. Uh, sometimes that works perfectly. Sometimes I have a lot of clients who'll say, look, my 25 year old's okay. I just don't want them having access to all of this right away. I'm okay if they get some money every year, they'll deal with it. They'll learn about it. I think they'll do fine, but I didn't want to getting it. I didn't want them getting it all at one time. So this is perfect. Other clients may look at their 25-year-old and say, ah, it's not a good idea for them to get anything. Uh, they've got a drug problem or an alcohol problem. They've got an immaturity problem or a spending problem or a spouse problem, or they have special needs. I don't want them getting the money. I don't want them entitled to the money. Uh, so what does that mean? What's going to happen in this situation? So IRS says, well, you can have an accumulation trust. You can have a trust where you don't distribute money to the beneficiary but then we're going to look at who that last beneficiary is. So if it's a charity, it's not going to work. You don't get the stretch out. You don't get all the income tax benefits. Mm. You have to make it a younger beneficiary. So that works great for my older daughter. I can have an accumulation IRA trust for my oldest daughter and say, look, at her death, split it equally among my two younger daughters. Well, that's fine. They're younger. doesn't work so well for my youngest daughter. I create a IRA trust for my 12-year-old and say, but if you're gone, it goes to your older sister. That's no good. That doesn't work. And so you're left in this situation with clients where you're sitting down trying to find a solution and to see whether or not these are going to fit into your set of circumstances, what you want to accomplish. Um, estate planning is this continuum between control and efficiency. The more control you want, the less efficiency you get. The more efficiency you want, the less control you get. So this is one of those things where you are picking through the the you know the underbrush of I want this and this. Can I have them together? No. Okay. So I can't have this anymore. I can't have my charity be a beneficiary. Who are my beneficiaries going to be? Uh, and it, it's really a a complicated at times exercise and very frustrating for clients. Well, this is very frustrating for your uh, co-host here. So how would I get in touch with you after the show so that I might come and talk to you? Sure. So uh, by email, mark, M-A-R-C, at handlerlevine.com, H-A-N-D-L-E-R-L-E-V-I-N-E.com, uh, phone 301-961-6464. We have a website, uh, www.handlerlevine.com. H-A-N-D-L-E-R-L-E-V-I-N-E.com. Uh, and we've got lots of information there. And ways I was going to say us. that website might be a good read before calling. There's a lot of information. We have questionnaires. We have, even if you don't want to talk to us, but you're going to go talk to your estate planning attorney out there in the world, we've got information on questionnaires, on what to, what to do to prepare for your meeting with an estate planner or a financial advisor. So it's a good way to sort of have a primer on the process before you walk in. Okay, good. How, how's that uh, contact point again? It's uh, Mark, M-A-R-C, at handlerlevine.com, H-A-N-D-L-E-R-L-E-V-I-N-E.com. And by the way, folks, uh, they know this stuff, especially for the federal employee, retiree. That we, we talk to an awful lot of them. Yeah, you do. All righty. So um, where we go, we got all of how many minutes? Seven minutes? Andrew says seven minutes. So some things to think about, really, because you're not going to take what you heard in the last, you know, however many minutes and have an answer. A lot of this is sort of setting up a, a series of questions when you go to do your estate planning. Uh, if you're thinking, I don't need to do estate planning, I can just go and do it myself. If you have qualified benefits uh, and you think you may have anything other than everything goes out right to my spouse and my kids and my grandkids, et cetera, uh, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it yourself. Uh, anytime you're dealing with a significant portion of your assets being a qualified account, including that TSP, you probably want to ask some questions. And if you're sitting down, if you're going to the attorney or you went to them 10 years ago or eight years ago or 15 years ago when your TSP was not that significant a portion of your estate, it's probably time to sit down with them again and say, okay, what's the right plan for me today? Uh, what's the right plan for my family today? And how does this TSP now factor in to all of that? What can I do to get the most benefit out of it? What things might I do to accidentally trip up 
the benefit that not just my spouse and my children, but even my grandchildren may get because it is an asset that currently at least can be left down generations uh, and, and have some pretty significant income tax benefits even as you go down to children and grandchildren uh, and on. So I'm listening to the show and I'm thinking to myself, I'm uh, one that practices avoidance and uh, doing estate planning or having a will done. I just want to avoid it. But I think I just heard that for a number of years really doesn't, I'm never going to have that kind of money. I'll just wait until it switches back and I, I kick the can down the road. By the way, folks, I'm not suggesting you do this, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm appealing to people that maybe think like I do or I used to think like that. Um, the uh, and the incentive, I think, is to do it sooner rather than later and go there often. Um, where do you want this stuff to go? Well, um, I, yeah, that's exactly the question. There, there are two parts to estate planning, really. There's the sort of mandatory part. Everybody needs a, a power of attorney. Everyone needs a health care directive. That's just because you're a human walking around in the, in the world. If you have adult children, they need it. My daughter turns 18 in April. She'll wake up to a birthday cake and a power of attorney. Uh, because <laughs> what a romantic you are <laughs> i know well she, she she loves that joke but it's finally going to come true for her so um it, it's just these are certain things i i can tell you more and more i see where people haven't done the power of attorney and healthcare directive and something happens and helping them becomes much much harder it becomes more expensive and and you don't get the result that the family wants similarly doing a will is really as much, if not more, about making things easy for your family, making it easy for them to know who's in charge, what happens, where things go, how they go there. Uh, there's always more planning that can be done. There's always more things and issues that come up. But I know sitting down with anyone, they need a will, they need a power of attorney, they need a health care directive, and they need to review their beneficiary designations. That goes for everybody. Okay. Um, question um – some um, couples I talk to, one w wants to have this done for the orderliness of it and everything you said, and the other one doesn't want to talk about it because it means that their um, significant other, their spouse is no longer going to be around, and they just freeze. Um, have you ever had to thaw somebody like that? Sure. I mean, I think there are lots of reasons why people procrastinate about this. There are reasons when they've got little kids where they're arguing over guardians, there's issues when they get older where they just can't face the reality that it's a when, not an if issue that we're dealing with. Um, I will say that I work pretty hard for people to leave meetings going, that's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Uh, and we really try and reduce the stress and reduce the the angst over issues and sort of reduce them down to to really common sense, uh, which I'm a big believer of in estate planning. And I think that people blow it up more than they, they think. I think that once you sort of sit down and talk about the issues, uh, it becomes clearer what the answers are. And that I do hear a lot from clients who are hesitant to come in that they thought they were going to have to sort of do all this heavy lifting. And really, once we sit down and talk, it becomes very clear what the answers are and what the path is. And, and really... Again, not as bad as they thought it was going to be. In our respective uh, professions, we've all uh, been put into a situation where you're talking to a couple and one is rock solid against something and the other one is, what would you say was your, I won't call it biggest success, where you got the one that was really digging in the heels or just didn't get it and finally said, how did you break that moment? A lot of it's just conversation about what they think something is versus what it really is. Amen. Yep. Uh, so, yep. you know, yep. what is a trust? Well, you know, it's, it's this complicated thing and you have to pay the lawyer and you have to pay the accountant and you have to pay this and a bank has to be the trust. And you walk them through the reality of what that actually means and how important, again, and I stress this over and over, the application of common sense to a lot of these things is, is a great balm. I mean, really, it helps people understand that this can really go the way I want it to go. I just have to write it down. I just have to say it. Um, the other thing I'll say, this situation comes up a lot in second marriages, second relationships, blended families. Mm -hmm. That's one of the biggest issues with TSPs as well, is because how do you deal with using the TSP to provide for the new spouse 
but still leave it for the kids. And that is something I think that gets messed up more than it gets done right. I would think that's extremely sensitive, especially is if the kids of the first marriage, if you will, uh, maybe they need something. And sure. the new spouse maybe needs it, but they need it uh, less than the other. Well, and a lot of times what the what the other spouse will say, the spouse with the retirement plan or with the assets will say is, you know, I it's there for my spouse and whatever's left goes to my kids. I just want to make sure whatever's left doesn't go to his kids or her kids or someone other than my kids. So my new spouse may use it all. So be it. But what's left, I want going where I want it to go, not where he wants it to go or she wants it to go. Never have trouble then with the kids. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> sure. I, you know, look, families are infinite shades of gray. Uh, and I think part of <laughs> part of what makes my job enjoyable is sitting down with people not knowing, you know, I can look at a questionnaire and think I know them. And you sit down and you realize, that, you know, you're, you're going to peel through a lot of layers to figure out what they really want to accomplish and what their real concerns are. Talking about peeling the layers once more, how does somebody get in touch with you? Because we got a lot of layers that we talked about today. <laughs> sure. It's uh, Mark, M-A-R-C, at handlerlevine.com, H-A-N-D-L-E-R-L-E-V-I-N-E.com, uh, 301-961-6464, uh, and handlerlevine.com. Okay. Um, good. Then you handle not all feds, but primarily feds. Is that fair to say? The the volume of feds is very high, but we do represent people yeah. okay. in every walk of life. Because there somebody maybe listening, well, my friend needs it, but they're not a fed. Right. Um, everybody represent, needs it. Everybody needs it. We represent a lot of lawyers. And, and for the most part, I like representing lawyers. So that, that works out okay. <laughs> you do? Okay, good. All righty. I think uh, we've got um, an outstanding show here that I could probably listen to uh, in, in my uh, time in the car or at, at home. Thank you. And uh, we'll be back next week. Final comments, though, before I go racing off. Uh, go do estate planning. That's the, 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 the biggest piece of advice I can give is think this stuff through and, and be proactive. Take some action about it. Is that kind of the old adage, go early and go often? <laughs> sure. All that right. works for me, too. <laughs> All righty. Thanks for being here, Andrew. Thanks for taking good care of us, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to For Your Benefit, presented by NITP and sponsored by WEPA. Please tune in next Monday at 10 a.m. for a topic solely devoted to you, the federal employee. This show can also be heard on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search For Your Benefit. Thanks for listening.